Welcome back to the Burn Bag Podcast. This is Ryan Rosenthal, joined by a now hiccuping uh, Andre Ganuela. Andre uh, has a case of the hiccups, and so he'll be a bit more limited today in his conversation. Uh, Andre, I'll give you just a brief hello. What's going on? How are you? I've been hiccuping since 6.30 last evening, and it's now 1 p.m. today, and I've been hiccuping like crazy. You know, hiccups are hiccups. Um, some have, you know, your, your younger sister scare you, hold your breath, all those things that one does when they have the hiccups. Anyway, we're not here to talk about hiccups. Uh, we are here to talk about today's fantastic episode with Mick Mulroy. Where we'll talk about some hiccups in foreign policy. Oh, okay. Nope. That's the best <laughs> joke you're going to get out of him for today. Um, kudos, Andre. So anyway, Mick Mulroy um, was the, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Middle East from 2017 to 2019. He basically oversaw all DOD policy uh, towards the Middle East. And and before that, he actually served as a CIA paramilitary operations officer and U.S. Marine. And since uh, leaving government service, he co-founded the Lobo Institute uh, and also uh, is the co-president of End Child Surger- Soldiering, um, which is his nonprofit to do as what the, you know, the nonprofit says is to end child soldiering. We talk about that. Uh, but Andre, a really just kind of a, a fascinating conversation with Mick. We talk about a variety of things that we actually have not talked about on the podcast before, the first of which uh, is a big chunk of his career as a CIA paramilitary operations officer. Uh, those are you know, really the closest thing we get to the Hollywoodization of the CIA. So they basically paramilitary operations officers, as Mick will kind of discuss and explain, get sent uh, to places all across the world, particularly in the post 9-11 era to war zones, uh, where they, in addition to other types of CIA personnel and also the US military, engage in a variety of operations. They are uh, really soldiers who are you know, taken from the, you know, the best, the best units in the US military and then are trained in tradecraft. So uh, CIA tradecraft, it's really just a truly a, a, you know, a fascinating uh, career path for, for him. And so we discussed that. And then we talk about Afghanistan. Of course, uh, the paramilitary operations officers were, were the guys who were first in uh, during the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. So he gives kind of the, the overview of that as well. Uh, and then we talk about Afghanistan because that's a, a certainly a major issue. It was during his uh, service in government and, and still is a, a major issue today that we continually talk about. And Mick, who, you know, despite overseeing Middle East policy from 2017 to 2019 was in favor of a residual force in Afghanistan. And of course, as we know now, uh, there is no residual force. The United States has fully withdrawn. And so Mick talks about uh, the consequences and implications of a full and complete U.S. withdrawal. And and on top of that, we, we then talk about things going up around the world, kind of this transition from the global war on terror, the post 9-11 era kind of change towards combating terrorism to now what we're seeing as quote unquote strategic competition, that is the US versus China, how resources and personnel are being diverted, or maybe not not necessarily diverted, but looking towards towards Asia and China in particular. And we talk uh, to Mick about what the implications of this transition are, uh, but he seems to be confident the U.S. is up to the task and uh, we will be able to compete effectively and be able to balance all of the threats that face the United States, both present and emerging. And so really just a, a wonderful conversation. And I think, you know, for me, at least one of the most meaningful 
uh, parts of it was uh, his discussion about this nonprofit and child soldiering. Child soldiering uh, is something that we don't hear a lot about in the United States. Uh, it certainly isn't something that that really impacts most Americans and and most in in countries that don't have child soldiering present. But it really is a a terrible problem. It's it's quite intractable and and endemic in certain areas. And so uh, it's it was fascinating to hear about his experience with it and how he kind of became to to start this nonprofit. And so I'll leave it at that. Um, Andre, anything else to add? No, not really. I mean, Mick's service as a CIA paramilitary officer is really interesting. I mean, when you think about that role, you want to think about perhaps the first guys who went to Afghanistan. Uh, Mick did not say that he was one of those guys in, in terms of the folks who actually went to Afghanistan. But think about that. He was one of those first guys who went to Iraq in the immediate uh, sort of uh, period preceding the war. But think about that, sort of the guys who went in to put together that Northern Alliance right before the U.S. military actually went in. And uh, you can certainly read more about that online and so on. So, All right. Well, without further ado, on to our conversation with Mick Mulroy. So I want to begin today's conversation by talking about a, a particular aspect of your career, that being your time at CIA, where you served as a paramilitary operations officer. And I think for for most of our listeners, they may not be familiar with that that position. We, we've talked to many uh, staff operations officers. We've talked to operations officers on the podcast, but never a para, paramilitary operations officer. And so, uh, I, I just first off, is it is it Jason Bourne? Are you the are you among the, those guys kicking in doors, going overseas? Well, I don't think I'd ever equate anything in the, the CIA necessarily to like the Hollywood version of it. I guess, I guess that would be the closest, uh, closest actual being in the CIA would be uh, a paramilitary operations officer. I am, of course, restricted a bit on what I could. Actually, not a bit. I'm restricted a lot about what I could actually talk about. Um, but there is a certain amount that we're allowed to talk about because we are all recruiters, right? So even when we're retired old folks like me, um, we're, we're out there trying to get the, get folks to join the agency. Uh, so not just, uh, as paramilitary operations officers, which I'll get back to, but that's just a small fraction. Operations officers, staff operations officers, case management officers, targeting officers. Um, that's just in the DO. We also have analysts all over uh, the, the building uh, that f- focus on everything from geographic areas to issue-oriented, like counterproliferation or terrorism. And we have a whole technical wing. Uh, so, um, but specific to your question, yes, I was a paramilitary operations officer. And what that is, is a hybrid. So we take predominantly from U.S. military special operations, but there are some straight up like infantrymen like me that we do. But predominantly, it's what you think it is, right? It's Green Berets, SEALs, it's Recon and Raider Marines, um, and it's and there's some Air Force like uh, PJs and JTACs, the people that call in airstrikes. But predominantly, that's that is the crowd of which we recruit, and usually for PMOOs, uh, it's around ten years of experience that they look for, and uh, then they're what I mean, a hybrid. So they come in with these special operations military uh, skills, and then we train them as OOs. So we're both. And that's an operations officer is kind of what you think of traditionally when you think of the agency. 
They spot, assess, develop, and recruit and run assets, uh, collect intelligence, and run covert action. So that is a long process. You go to a place that I'm sure you and many of your viewers, uh, listeners rather, have heard of, and that's the farm. Um, so it's it's a it's a multi. It's up to a year or longer in training, and then the PMOOs go to an additional PM training course. So it's a pretty long process. Um, and what we end up with is a person who um, can conduct the regular intelligence operations, clandestine intelligence operations, usually in austere environments. We're, uh, we're the ones that usually go in first into conflict areas if the U.S. wants to reinsert our presence there, like Somalia, if you think of that. You know, we left and then we went back, and that's one mission. And we also basically carry out our version of a regular warfare. So covert version of a regular warfare, which is working with local forces, embedding ourselves with them. Um, anything that falls within that spectrum also, uh, which is, uh, there's a military version and there's an agency version. And the agency version falls within what's called the Special Activities Center. And that's the, that houses all the paramilitary and influence uh, of the agency. So we're always looking for good people. Um, it is it is a service that is unique. It's it's no, and I, and I was a marine. You already mentioned that. Uh, it's it is just as as valuable as military service. It's just one of those things that you know. If you join the agency, don't expect parades. Don't expect a lot of you know. Uh, you get on the airplane first, kind of thing. It's just it's a it's a secret service in that sense, and it's it, it is meant to be that way. So. It's unique, but I think it's uh, it's very valuable. And for us, the war never stops, right? The, it's a continuous effort to try to thwart the adversaries of the United States so they cannot, you know, do harm in the United States. And that's and that's my my pitch to people who are interested. Um, it is a great way to serve. It's a it's a phenomenal organization. The further you get away from it, right, you can look back and go, wow, that, they were really really awesome. Uh, and the people that work there are, are awesome. Awesome. So it was a real privilege. It was a privilege, quite frankly, just to be counted among the ranks of paramilitary officers. Um, some of those guys are, I mean, they really are the Jason Bourne. I'm not, you know, people used to joke and call me Jason Bean. I was like half Jason Bourne, half Mr. Bean. Probably should have admitted that on, uh, on a freaking podcast. But um, I know Jason Bourne and he's, and he's in my old unit and it wasn't me. I was just uh, just proud to be there. So when you said that the paramilitary operations officers are sort of the first ones on the ground, is this sort of similar to sort of like the CIA entry into Afghanistan uh, in the weeks after 9-11? So like, was it folks like you who were there in those first weeks before the formal military presence sort of uh, took on? Yeah, that's a great example, Andre. So, and, and it's public, right? So I can, it's not like I'm giving up anything. So there was... Uh, paramilitary operations officers, and paramilitary specialists, I should point that out. So we also have specialists that, those are uh, individuals that do a full career in, you know, the SEAL teams or Delta Force or MARSOC, and then they come in and they really just focus on the paramilitary aspects. So a team would include a PMOO and a bunch of PM specialists. Uh, but those are the folks that go in first. So First in Afghanistan, and there was there was just a book that came out um, on the anniversary of nine eleven uh, that talks about that, and that was uh, supported by the agency itself. 
So it's well known. And then also the first in two places like Iraq. And uh, myself and a uh, retired Green Beret Lieutenant General just wrote a paper for an, uh, the Middle East Institute, uh, which I'm, as you mentioned, I belong to, on the first team that went into Iraq and the importance of working as an interagency and the importance of using a regular warfare um, to advance everything that we need in our national security strategy. I know we're going to get into that a bit, but we actually wrote a paper on it. It's an academic paper, so it's not, you know, no kidding, there was knee deep in hand grenade pins or anything like that. It's more just academic and it's about the effort, not about any individual. But that, it really, I think, I'm a little biased, but it highlights, it highlights the point you're making that we're usually in there first and we're usually tied at the hip uh, eventually with um, military special operations. So Nick, I'm curious how you found yourself um, at CIA because every time we talk to uh, a former agency person, uh, they always have uh, an, an interesting story about you know their level of service. You, of course, had served in, in the Marines previously, so you were that commitment to service was very evident and clear. Um, and you also were, were a JAG, a judge advocate for all of those listening who may not be aware of, they're, they're military lawyers. And so your, your career trajectory is, is, at least to me as someone who's in law school, very fascinating and a very close friend of mine is hoping to be a JAG. And so uh, maybe he'll take a listen to this and see himself, you know, as, as find some commonalities with that trajectory. But um, yeah, so where did CIA kind of fit into your career path? So you're right. I have like somewhat of a four-step type career here, but um, <laughs> You know, some people say, can't hold a job, right? But I was, uh, I was an enlisted Marine um, before, and then I became a judge advocate, and then I was an infantry officer, of course. So um, that's, that's kind of the, and I, and I was a tanker. So I was a tanker, uh, you know. So I had a, an interesting mix of MOSs. As a judge advocate, um, you go into, they have them in all branches of the service, um, but you are essentially what it sounds like. You're a, a lawyer. You can be a pro. Usually they mix you between prosecutor defense and then some kind of legal assistance. Uh, but you really learn how to be a lawyer really fast. And you get a lot of experience, just like you do as any young officer in any branch in any MOS. So you get a lot of experience up front. I think it's a really good way to uh, to serve your country and to, to learn the trade of being a lawyer for anybody that's in law school. I would highly recommend it. Uh, for me, again, I was uh, a, a judge advocate, and then I was an infantry officer. So I came into the agency. It sounds like some made-up Irish-American story. I was no kidding with a Irish priest in an Irish pub. Uh, actually, he's Italian. He was, he, was a, he was a Catholic priest in an Irish pub when another guy came in that he knew who was in the agency. I didn't know that. I was already a Marine officer. And the guy just started talking to me about, you know, what am I going to do when I get out of the Marine Corps? And I was like, well, I didn't know I was getting out of the Marine Corps. And he goes, well, you're, you know, you might want to. And then he wrote a fax machine on the back of a, the cocktail napkin. It was in Murphy's, you know, Murphy's in, in uh, Old Town. And I faxed my resume to a person. I kind of assumed he was the agency because he wouldn't tell me. Uh, and that's how it started. And then I ended up going in. And uh, I was there at 9-11, so I was in training, and we, you know, and so my whole career uh, was really uh, initiated by that event. We watched the towers drop in the amphitheater where they all called us in, and we're, our uh, class director, who was a giant man, he played uh, NFL football as an offensive lineman, and he's up there pounding his fist about 
you know, the attack that just happened and then the screen behind him was playing CNN and you could see then the, the first building just collapsed upon itself. And, you know, then you could hear gasps and sobs and cuss words. That's kind of the beginning of my CIA career. Uh, and then from there, it was just like every other paramilitary officer. It was Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, I mean, Libya, um, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of places and a lot of, a lot of effort. Uh, but that, that, that's how I ended up being in the agency. And that's how my agency career kicked off. So the CIA often relies on a lot of human intelligence uh, resources, a lot of uh, agents and so on from foreign countries. Uh, and recently we saw some articles in New York Times that talked about, I think that there's been significantly more of those folks who have been lost, uh, either captured or killed by foreign governments. What's your first reaction to that story? So I don't know anything about it specifically, right? I, I'm an analyst for ABC News. I don't collect information, but people ask me for my you know, analysis on it. So uh, I just want to highlight that because I don't know any specific information, whether there are assets being killed at a higher rate than, or any rate would be bad. Uh, but I think at least indicates that there's a concern. If the story is accurate and, and they did send out a message, um, there probably is a concern. Maybe they know something uh, that, that, that security services are cracking down or doing more on their counter-espionage, counter-intelligence front. I mean, every nation uh, commits espionage, almost every nation, right? It's just part of their national security um, efforts, and we're no different. We obviously have a, an entire agency dedicated to it. We have multiple agencies dedicated to it. The CIA is the premier one. So um, we would be nowhere without our assets, uh, people that are willing to uh, contribute. Uh, so if we can't protect them, then we're of essentially no value. And that we have assets to do both intelligence collection and help us carry out covert action. So they are critical um, for both of our major uh, functions at the CIA. So our ability to protect them is is key. It's paramount. And I think we do quite a bit to ensure that's the case. And we, you know, quite frankly, we go to extraordinarily lengths to make sure that is the case. And I would just point you to. Um, the effort, I think it was the Washington Post, that talked about the agency getting people out of Afghanistan. So again, I can't confirm that from any, but from the article of the Washington Post, it was some, for the agency, I think it was like 20,000 people they cited. Um, that's a Herculean effort. I mean, the, the military was a Herculean effort to get 124,000. The military is, as you all know, you know, a thousand times larger than the agency. So for the agency to get out 20,000, which is what the Washington Post said, that is impressive. But it also, I think, goes to show you how important those relationships are to the CIA. And that's not just with Afghans, that is worldwide. So I think that if, if they're concerned, I think they will do every necessary step to protect the people that uh, volunteer to work with us. So we're certainly going to touch on Afghanistan and kind of this reorientation from the global war on terror to great power competition or maybe strategic competition as the administration uh, is currently calling it. But before we do so, I do want to ask about human and how human kind of fits in to today's uh, intelligence gathering, because there have been commentary by, you know, both former CIA officials and also talking heads about that human is becoming a thing of the past with technology and that 
maybe we should be depending upon different types of intelligence gathering. But from your perspective, as someone who who served in the agency, what how do you see the value of humans? Is it something that will always be the primary source, the most important intelligence gathering capability of the CIA? So I think it will always be one of, if not the most important, uh, forms of intelligence collection. So there's always people talking about the end of human, and it, or pivoting to this, and pivoting to that, and then we still, we, and then ten years later, we're still talking about. So, and I also don't think it's a competition, right? So, it's all about collecting information, analyzing that information, and providing our policymakers the information they need to make the correct decision, right? So, signals intelligence, imagery intelligence, human intelligence. It's not an either or, and it pro- and it never will be. I don't think. You can say, well, we have all this advanced technology. Well, so do they. So if if we can't collect signals intelligence because everybody and their mother has a, a, a different form of encryption and they come up with new ones every day that make it impossible to hear, um, you're going to have to have somebody in the room. And that's a human, right? You also, humans actually know more about what the intent is behind just words. You might pick up just snippets of words from SIGINT but you don't know the bigger picture. Whereas somebody in the inner circle actually knows the intent behind the words and actually can tell you what that person is likely to do, even if they're not likely to say it. There's so much of the human um, you know, being that is, is beyond just typed words or said words, that human intelligence is, is as important today as it ever was. It's, now there's gonna be significant trade craft adjustments, I think, based on, uh, you know, biometrics, facial recognition everywhere you go, all the, you know, the smart city cameras everywhere. But that's, that's on the, the CIA uh, to, to adjust and, and to, to kind of find a way around. But human intelligence is never going to go away. It's going to be an important part of the collection. But again, it's not a competition. So if you can get information from SIGINT that human just amplifies, great, or the other way around. So uh, we, we need them both. So you, you did mention uh, earlier that your career really, I mean, you had your first steps into your career in the aftermath of 9-11. And uh, you've sort of seen the war in Afghanistan transpire. And as we saw just recently uh, ended, uh, what missteps did we take in Afghanistan? And was it from an intel side or was it from a policy side? So mostly it was from a, a policy side. You know, I don't do politics at all. I don't belong to a party. I just, but I do to comment on policy. So I, I highlight that because I was, I was with, I think now we actually know, uh, with the entire chain of command and the Pentagon in the, the need uh, to leave a residual force behind in Afghanistan. Right? We, that number would have been anywhere between, I think, really three to 4,000 uh, U.S. Uh, persons, plus the agency contingent, and I can't get into how many there were there, but it was substantial, plus the contractors that we have there supporting a lot of this operation, plus the 7,000 NATO. And we could have maintained what we had gained in the last 20 years, which was Taliban wasn't in power, Al-Qaeda did not have a free reign, and now ISIS uh, to, to launch external operations in Afghanistan. And although it's super important, but it wasn't our original intent, we also significantly advanced human rights in that country. Women not only went to universities, they were equal in number in universities in, in Kabul. 
as men. There was a female mayor of Kabul. I mean, we had, and we had electrified a substantial portion of the country and the GDP of the country had gone up, you know, a hundredfold. That's all gone. It's all erased. It's all erased. We now have the Taliban in charge, which has, you know, one of their senior persons is a designated terrorist by us in the UN, right? Siraj Akhani. Um, they are allowing, obviously, ISIS-K, who attacked us before we even left and killed us, to operate. And all the human rights, uh, regardless of what kind of language they use right before you left, I think everybody knows that's done. So um, what, what I would say that we made a mistake in the policy was, one, uh, the huge surge we had. Like, all the arguments for leaving were about spending trillions of dollars and losing thousands of lives. Well, that would have been a good argument to have before we spent trillions of dollars and lost thousands of lives. So I would have been a proponent to have a much more modest force there that could extend over a longer period of time um, than have this huge spike and spend, admittedly, a credible amount of money and losing way too many lives. But that was because we sent 130,000 troops to do the primary fighting in clear Hellman province, right? We... By the time we ended, uh, 98% of the fighting was being done by Afghans. And although they've gotten a bad rap, 66,000 Afghan soldiers died fighting. So they had, they had proven their willingness to fight, right? Um, but when we left, we didn't include the government of Afghanistan, even in the discussions. It was like they didn't even exist. Um, we set their military up to be almost completely reliant on air. We basically built them in the mirror image of us. And then we took the air and the contractors, right? The contractors kept their aircraft flying. We told the contractors they couldn't even stay. So if we're surprised that the military collapsed, I don't know why. Um, they were getting completely surrounded. They have no air support. That's how they train to fight. So I would say, I mean, it's obviously a much longer discussion. We did a lot of things right and wrong in Afghanistan. But I think one of the things is... We, we did like we, the pendulum swing from all in 130,000 troops to, oh, well, have hell with it. Let's just leave. Right. And it, and I think that really angered a lot of the veterans, not just the military veterans, but the intelligence folks and the, and quite frankly, the State Department folks that spent so much time, time out there on, you know, traveling, you know, PRTs and all sorts of stuff. There's a lot of veterans of this war and media. Media was furious because it was, it just seemed like we gave everything that we fought so hard for up uh, for political expediency. And, and again, this was, you know, I point out I'm not a partisan person. This was a decision that went across two administrations. So it's, it's really not pointed at one, uh, you know, political party. I think it was a bad policy decision to start it in the last administration. And, and negotiate with the Taliban. We've been fighting the Taliban. It was the Taliban we fought for the last 20 years. Al-Qaeda ran as soon as we got there. And to trust them, that's insane. And then for the next administration to act like they didn't, they had no choice, of course they had a choice. The Taliban have broken every part of the agreement, every part. And you don't have an obligation to continue with an agreement when the other side is not upholding their side of the agreement. So, and then of course, the actual evacuation itself was, it was it was just horrible. So when we look at say our mistakes in Afghanistan, I've often heard this commentary that says the CIA was 
quite good at sort of understanding the internal political or cultural or societal dynamics of sort of how Afghanistan operated in terms of like the tribal uh, nature of it and all just the different sorts of entities and the personalities there. Was there sort of a, I guess, a gap with how the CIA operated and how the U.S. military operated? And was the did the U.S. armed forces necessarily, did they understand how Afghanistan worked? And did that sort of lead to our uh, problems in Afghanistan? So, I, did, I mean, the agency does a lot to really understand the culture as a matter of course, right? Because we operate, when we go into a place, we're always way, 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 way outnumbered. And we're having to work with... Um, locals to do everything. Whereas the military, when you, when you, when you invade, you invade. So, I mean, and you bring in the Death Star, right? So there is that part of the culture, but I wouldn't say that the military didn't take a lot of effort, quite frankly, to learn the culture. Uh, I used to, you know, work for Secretary Mattis, uh, before then he was General Mattis, and he was very well known for both in Afghanistan and Iraq for making sure his Marines knew the culture. And we're sensitive to it. So I don't, I mean, yes, the agency probably is a little better because we're smaller and we're older, you know, uh, than a lot of our military services. Uh, but I think we worked really well together. I, some of the most successful missions and like campaigns that we had were a combination of CIA military. So the Northern Alliance in the, in the initial fall of the Taliban, that was CIA and predominantly Army Green Berets. Um, in, in Iraq, same thing. Uh, you know, we, we became the Northern Front. We, you might not have heard of it, there was an operation called Viking Hammer that took on Ansar al-Islam uh, before the war even started. And that was just a handful of Americans and thousands of Kurds, and it was a, it was a significant uh, campaign. And then we became the Northern Front against 14 divisions. It was just CIA, Army Special Forces, and a lot of Kurdish Peshmerga. So those are two examples, but you can also say uh, the tracking down of Osama bin Laden. That's another combination of military and or Baghdadi, you know, uh, more to now. So there's a lot, a lot of, and then, although we can't get into it, there's units that we created together, both in Iraq and Afghanistan, that were, it was a combination, it was under the agency, but it was a combination of the military and the agency that I thought made it super effective. The surge in Iraq, you know, that was also a combination. So I've, I've never looked at the military, perhaps because I am a military person, started my career and ended my career there. But I ever looked at a competition with the CIA, and I don't know many CIA people that do. It's, it's, uh, it's an extraordinarily close partner, and I think we do some of the best work we do when we work together. So, Nick, if, if we look to the future, we will never know what would have happened had we left a residual force in Afghanistan. Uh, but now that the U.S. has withdrawn, uh, it's very difficult and if not right now impossible for any sort of U.S. operations to commence in Afghanistan. What are the implications, both from a policy perspective and from a, a military slash intelligence perspective for U.S. attempts to operate in Afghanistan? Of course, the CIA had vast operations that are that have been made aware from you know news reports in Afghanistan. And of course, the military was very present. And that not only allowed us to help try to rebuild Afghanistan, but also allowed us to counter terrorist activity in both Afghanistan and the broader region. It was a great uh, kind of uh, you know setting off point from which we engage in counter-terror operations. 
with Afghanistan gone and seemingly Central Asian countries really unwilling to host U.S. operations, how does that impact both U.S. policy in, in the Middle East, particularly in that region of the world, and also from an operational standpoint? Yeah, right. It really does impact. And I know we're going to talk about great power competition or strategic competition, whatever they change it to. But this, this affects everything. So I, I would like to start because I know, you know, we've seen a lot about was it intelligent failure that, they, that the government and the military collapsed so quickly. Um, in public statements from General Milley, he says that, no, the intelligence community did not predict 11 days. Anybody that knows, I mean, the intelligence is never going to be able to predict by the day. But in the same conversation, uh, and I have a, a great respect for General Milley, so I'm just highlighting because he said it in his conference, you can look back on it, that one of their probable uh, conclusions to this was that the government would fall within weeks of the U.S. leaving. Okay, 11 days and a few weeks later is essentially the intelligence community saying there is a strong probability that once we depart, this place is going to be run by the Taliban. I mean, just a matter of a week's difference, it's, to me, is like that's not, that's not a distinction that's, that you can you know, hang your hat on. And then uh, General McKenzie also said in his sworn testimony that he predicted that with the withdrawal of the U.S. military, the government and the military would collapse. So um, I think we did know that. If we chose to, we obviously did chose to, to leave anyway, then we did it knowing that that was likely to occur. So uh, now we have to figure out um, how we're going to do this, and I know you've heard the phrase, and I'm sure your listeners have, over the horizon operations, which essentially just means we're going to come from far away. Um, if you look at Qatar, if you look at Kuwait, the two likely places, they're over a thousand miles away. So, um, and we're, what exactly are they going to do when they get those planes there? That's the problem, and you already mentioned it. We had an extensive network of intelligence collection capability. We had a service that we built from ground up that had the ability to get all over the country. And of course, we had all sorts of bases and such. Uh, the US, IC, the intelligence community, and the military. Now that's all gone. So if you can't collect the intelligence to say, oh, there is a threat, they're plotting to you know, do a, you know, an assault on a mall in the United States, and this is where they're plotting it out of, and they're training over here on you know, how to do it. And then these are the key people, and this is where they're going to be at this time, and this is what they look like. I mean, it doesn't matter if you fly the most sophisticated drones overhead or aircraft. If you don't know any of that stuff, what's, what's the point? Um, and if we ever wanted to do an actual uh, unilateral operation, well, all unilateral now, but an operation where we send in uh, people to actually try to capture somebody because of the intelligence collection um, you know, benefit we get from that, we'd have to fly into a totally uh, hostile environment. You know, we've left billions of dollars worth of equipment and weapons into the hands of the Taliban, and we have no idea what the air defense they have. They could, they have all sorts of surface air missiles. So it has made our counterterrorism efforts very difficult, which is exactly what both generals testified in the congressional hearings. It's, yes, we'll try to do it. Yes, we can do it. Will it be anywhere near as effective as it would have been if we uh, actually had our bases there? No. So we, it, let's just. But the thing is, it's not even worth trying to hope that they won't. If Al Qaeda exists, they exist to attack the West. That's the whole point of their existence. If ISIS, same thing. So if they exist in Afghanistan and they're not plotting to attack the West, what's the point of their existence? 
So I don't think we could even, we could, you know, just hope they don't do it. Well, of course, they're going to try to do it. Let's just hope they're not effective. We can count on them trying. Mm -hmm. So for for our audience, I just want to note that, I mean, you were basically responsible for Department of Defense policy for Bahrain, Egypt, Israel, Iran, Iraq, Jordan, Kuwait, Lebanon, Oman, Palestine, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Syria, the UAE, and Yemen. So that's the broad swath of the Middle East. I don't know if I can remember all (laughs) that. But we are currently seeing, I mean, we're sort of seeing, as we alluded to earlier, this uh, transition from the global war on terror to great power competition, or as the administration is now saying, strategic competition. The emphasis appears to be more so on China, on Russia, and there seems to be a preclusion to pivot to Asia, pivot east. Does that mean that we might be not paying attention to the Middle East as much as we should be? Uh, Does that mean we're sort of losing our touch, that we are not heeding the real threats that remain in the region? Yeah, so Andre, I mean, I totally agree with the way we prioritized the national security strategy, the national defense strategy, which was done in 2018, so while I was at the Pentagon. And then there's an irregular warfare annex that supported that, and that uh, also prioritized the same way. So we China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, and, and then counterterrorism. So China is obviously the biggest threat because they have the most capable force, and uh, and they're at the top. I do think it's important to note that China has no interest, in my opinion, in any kind of global conflict. It's not in their interest. It's certainly not. Russia seems to be like they just want to be the villain in the movie. So I know that people are like that's a simplistic way of looking at it. But every time I talk to a Russian expert, they go, "Oh no, that's it. That's it. They want to be the black hats. So they just figure out what we want to do, and they want to do the opposite. So they almost want to have like it's like it gives them international clout, at least in their mind, to have some kind of conflict with the the U.S. It's like they put them on the same playing field. Then of course we have the rogue. Nations of North Korea uh, and Iran, or what we call rogue, uh, and we can get into some. I didn't have anything to do with North Korea, but we spent a lot of time uh, on uh, Iran. You know whether we should exit the JCPOA, the Maxim Pressure Campaign. Um, I, I, and most of the Department of Defense, if not all, differed in the idea we should not have. We thought we should have stayed in the JCPOA, uh, but then, and then, and of course, terrorism. So to your point and your question, that is the right order, but we the enemy gets a say. And the enemy in this case I'm talking about is terrorism. So if if a car bomb blows up in Times Square and kills you know, 72 Americans, um, watch how fast tech terrorism shoots to the top of the priority list. We won't say it does, but it will. Uh, that's the way uh, every country works, and America's no exception to that. When we feel direct threat, or we see a direct threat that actually materializes and kills Americans, we're going to respond. So they actually, they actually have a vote. Uh, the other point you made is the Middle East. Simply shifting our resources to the, you know, the Far East, to the Pacific, doesn't necessarily counter China. When China is landing today aircraft at Bagram Air Force Base in Afghanistan, right? And Russia is is expanding their presence in in and their military presence in Syria and Libya right now. So they have decided that they want to compete against the United States in the Middle East. 
So if we simply pull out of the Middle East, they win. They actually have more influence and we have less. So we can send our aircraft carriers to the South Pacific and we can send our forces. And China's like, great. We now, we did have multiple bases in Afghanistan, which borders uh, several countries, but all, but two of them are Iran, higher on the priority list than counterterrorism, and China. So we had bases, air bases with substantial military assets in Afghanistan ordering two of our higher priorities, and now we do not. So um, simply saying we're going to pivot away from the Middle East, which everybody says and nobody does, uh, isn't necessarily the most effective way to counter the growing influence of China and Russia. China's going to come in there because they see a huge depository of natural resources that could be exploited for their own gain. And Russia simply, you know, they, they have a benefit they feel like okay, we're going to rub it in the, the nose of the United States. Um, so I do agree with the priorities. We just have to have to be more strategic and more, quite frankly, playing chess rather than checkers and saying, okay, let's just send all our stuff to the Far East and say we're countering China. And China's moving in to Africa and the Middle East. Uh, and it's, 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 yeah, it's part of their, their whole program plan, you know, their um, 100-year marathon, their... Uh, their plan that goes on much longer than we ever planned. But we have to have the, the knowledge to actually, China is going all these different places. What are we doing to actually counter their growing influence? And what are we doing to best prepare ourselves for, which we all hope never happens, but a conflict with a, with a near peer competitor, as we call it. That's China and Russia. I mean, that certainly is kind of on the minds of many within Washington, D.C., who look at uh, the strategic competition as, I'll say what the administration says, uh, calls it. Um, but if we focus in on the, the terrorist threat in particular, um, and even more specific, the threat to the homeland, uh, ISIS-K seems to have been able to operate uh, quite effectively since, or during and since the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. There, of course, is a threat of resurgence of, of, of ISIS, but also other terrorist elements in Afghanistan. And so uh, now that the United States cannot operate really at all in Afghanistan, what are some efforts that can be undertaken by the intelligence community and the U.S. military to ensure that it doesn't come home or maybe impact our, our allies that are closer by? So there's, there's multiple parts to this. Is, and I think we've seen it play out. I don't know for sure. But when it comes to um, putting military assets in the region, it appears from the media reporting that we've talked to several of the countries around there and either they didn't want us to be present there or they asked for way too much money because then you saw the media reports that we actually went to Russia. I mean, talk about not countering the influence of Russia when you're asking Russia if you can put U.S. military assets on their air bases. I mean, think about how far we've come there. Like we were given Turkey, rightfully so, a lot of grief for purchasing air defense system from Russia just because they had F-35s. And now we're to a point where we're asking Russia to put an F-35 on their base which is going to be the giant espionage target. I think that's why, from my understanding, the entire intelligence community and military were against this concept. So hopefully it doesn't happen. So we're having a hard time finding uh, places to put military assets closer to Afghanistan than the thousand plus miles that we already talked about. And then, of course, like how are you going to collect the intel? So there is, the, up in the Panjshir Valley, there's a resistance force. Um, 
I don't know how viable they are as a resistant force. And I am not one that would propose that we go in there and start uh, like a covert campaign to arm them. And I just don't think they, they have the capability, uh, but they might have the capability to at least stay that one little free spot in Afghanistan, which could give us a platform to collect information, not to launch attacks, because that would probably just draw more uh, bad attention uh, in, to them. But that's the potential. I actually don't know. I would just say it is one, because if they exist as a resistant force, they have to have intelligence networks. So we could pay you back on this. Possibly. Uh, I don't know enough to say that that would be the case. And then if it's not, then we're going to have to look at, like, are we going to come from Pakistan? No. I mean, Pakistan's been supporting the Taliban the entire time. They actually just went and flew the Taliban up to fight the resistant force uh, from the pictures I've seen in the media. Uh, and they're and they're visiting the Taliban in, in Kabul and meeting with um, the Minister of Interior, who is Sirajah Khan. So, according to media. So, that is, uh, it's, it's going to be difficult. And again, the military and the intelligence community does do difficult. So, and they don't have an option. They can't just say, well, it's too difficult to give up. So they're going to have to come up with a way to, to try to mitigate, at least understand the threat coming out of Afghanistan so we can mitigate it. If, if God forbid, there's another 9-11 attack that comes from a group inside Afghanistan, it's going to be an entirely different situation. So the Taliban has armored personnel carriers, tanks, helicopters, night vision devices, thousands, tens of thousands of night vision devices. It's not going to be the, the, like it was before uh, where a handful of Americans in the Northern Alliance takes Kabul. It, they are one of the better equipped militaries in the region now, thanks to us. So it's, you know, I don't want to doom and gloom it, but, it, you know, you got to point out the challenges. I think we'll be up for the task. I think the U.S. military and the CIA and the rest of the intelligence community We'll, we'll meet the challenge, but it, it is definitely a challenge. It's going to be difficult. So uh, before we wrap the conversation, I do want to shift gears a bit to talk a bit about the U.S.-Saudi relationship, and in particular, uh, the Yemen aspect of that. We've seen a lot of controversy over the, the Yemen civil war. Uh, what are your thoughts about sort of Saudi involvement in that and sort of the U.S. ties to Saudi? How does that all sort of play out, I guess? So that was uh, very controversial when I was uh, in the Pentagon. Um, we were brought up to the Hill multiple times. We had one where we actually briefed the entire Senate, so all 100 senators, and, and essentially got yelled at from both sides. <laughs> it's a bi- bipartisan uh, butt-chewing, if you will. But essentially, uh, to talk about the policy so you understand it, and it didn't change from the previous administration to well, the Obama administration to the Trump administration, um, we had limited support for the Saudi-led coalition's efforts in Yemen. We like refueled their planes and we had side-by-side coaches that um, essentially were U.S. Air Force to try to get them to do the same things we do to try to be very specific in targeting and limit civilian uh, casualties, right? So, and it was really controversial. Uh, and I, and the issue, and I understood like, okay, uh, the Saudis probably were not as careful as they should be. And, and we eventually unilaterally at the Pentagon decided to stop the refueling because that seemed to be the most direct involvement we had in, um, in the air campaign. So we just decided to stop that. But one thing that came up during those discussions was like stopping that isn't stopping the war. 
So what is it that the United States policy was about to actually help end one of the biggest human crises on earth that's man-made next to Syria? It's Yemen. So we, we uh, started an initiative called the Yemen Steering Initiative. Secretary Mattis is the one that kicked it off and we worked with some think tanks. And it really came up with a, a way ahead, far beyond you know cutting off refueling in the air, but it was an economic, diplomatic, security and humanitarian assistance plan way ahead where countries could contribute. It came out of the Defense Department, eventually the State Department, which should lead it, led it. Um, and, you know, to be blunt, it wasn't that popular within that administration. They didn't really care about international comprehensive plans. So but we hope it gets picked up now and because a lot of the people that were supportive of it are in, they're friends of mine, they're in the current government in the Pentagon. Um, because that's what's needed for Yemen. It's, it's Saudi Arabia. Um, they want out of it. They do have a legitimate security concern. So let's not, you know, gloss over that. But they've taken a beat from their activities there. A lot of it's, you know, I think fair criticism. But at the end of the day, we need to have a, a plan that the international community can get behind that at least entices both sides to look to stop fighting. It may be some kind of federalist partition where, you know, there's a little more autonomy in each side, but then build it so it's not, you know, from a fragile state to at least a functioning state. Right now it's a failed state to a fragile state to a functioning state. And then and then get it to where, where it is, uh, it's, it's on its own. So it's not just an international um, cherry case for the rest of existence. They don't want to be that. And eventually people will stop contributing, which they already are, because they don't see anything changing. So Yemen is a very, very difficult problem. A friend of mine's a special envoy, uh, Tim Lunderking, and he's doing yeoman's work. We, uh, Lobo, we were advisors to the last special envoy for the United Nations on Yemen uh, for a year. Uh, he's, he's since departed and moved on to a bigger position in the UN. But So we're very, we're very much entrenched in the Yemen situation, and it's a, it's a personal thing for us to see that change um, and that get off the trajectory of just constant warfare with, with major human suffering. Uh, but the Saudis are a part of it. But then again, you know, to be fair to them, every time we come up with a grand plan to do something in Yemen, who do we go to for funding? Saudi Arabia. So um, there is no real solution even if you take the best fines uh, to, to put together this plan I'm talking about or any version of it, that doesn't involve Saudi Arabia contributing substantially. So I think we need to really focus on the people of Yemen and what's uh, in their best interest and, and understand that all the regional players are going to have to be a part of it. And of course, the people of Yemen are the primary people that need to be a part of it. So we could spend another podcast talking about this, but... Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's quite an intractable problem and one that has, as you mentioned, uh, just a, such a great human cost. And so uh, I want to move away from that and begin to uh, end today's conversation by talking about your work for End Child Soldiering. You are the co-president uh, and you really, I, I would like for you to kind of outline what it is that the organization does because it's so important. And I've, I, I feel like most Americans and probably many listening aren't aware of, of this problem. Um, uh, in many areas around the world, just because it's not something that Americans really see or have to deal with. True. And so my, uh, the co-founder of Lobo Institute and also the co-president of In Child Soldiering is my partner, Eric Ulrich. 
He's a retired Navy SEAL who uh, spent 24 years, you know, fighting the same places that I did. And I bring that up because, and we're no, we're not unusual. You see a lot of kids on the battlefield, uh, carrying AKs, and a lot of them dead. So it's not, it wasn't uh, something that we were unaware of when we both ended up working on the counter LRA mission in Uganda, which was a big uh, operation called Observed Compass that uh, uh, President Obama really, both going back to President Bush, just a lot of support from both, both parties to, to see that uh, come to an end. And I think it essentially did come to an end. And Melanie U.S. Uh, played a big part of that. So during that time, uh, we both became very familiar, became friends with a former child soldier. He was um, a person who was abducted at 14. He was shot seven times. He has about three bullets still in him. He was hit with an RPG in the chest, believe it or not. It, it, the, the stabilizing fin tore through, almost tore his arm off. He was left for dead. Uh, he was thrown in a pit and partially buried until one of the ladies put dirt on him and said, hey, that, that guy's still alive because his eyes were open. Received no medical treatment and still survived. Um, he was useless as a soldier at that. But he had, uh, and I'm telling you this because this leads to the whole NGO, so just bear with me. Uh, it's, it's a phenomenal story. And the guy is just unbelievable. Uh, he knew how to night navigate, so they kept him alive because he just knew how to navigate by the stars. And then they realized how smart he was. He became a radio operator. He eventually became Joseph Coney's radio operator, who is one of the most wanted men in the world and the leader of the LRA. So from the intelligence guy's perspective, I was like, oh, this smokes. I got to get to know this guy. And I did. And now I'm like his two youngest sons, Godfather. So, and he, and then he's got, uh, his wife has an equally phenomenal son. Uh, they met in the bush. They fell in love with the bush. She gave birth during a firefight. Uh, and they both escaped, and now they take care of orphans of the LRA, and they're just like, you know, to me, they're like saints. So I, I bring that up because we did a documentary, like literally with iPhones and GoPros, just a passion project, not expecting, we're not documentary makers. And it got picked up by a lot of NGOs that work in this area, and there ain't a lot to, to raise money. So we gave screenings, you know, from uh, the Atlantic Council to the uh, Yale to all over the place. Um, and it got picked up by a really great author from Montana. Uh, and he, we took him out there recently and he interviewed everybody again. And he's writing the book and it's, we hope it, uh, it does really well because part of its funding are NGO. So that's how we get back to your question. So he's already, I mean, this guy, he's sold millions and millions of books. He's from Mark Sullivan's thing. Um, and he's, and he was grateful uh, or he was uh, really gracious in using the lot of the profits from the book to fund our NGO, which is already funding groups around the world that rehabilitate kids that have been forced to be child soldiers. So that's how it got started. And it is a, it is a serious problem, but it doesn't have a lot of sponsors might not be the best word, but so these are kids that are in societies very impoverished societies and they're the bottom of that right so it's and it is expanded tremendously there's 14 countries that the un has identified around the world and a lot of them are the ones that we fight in and it's it's doubled the un and we put a couple papers on this if you look at global institute it doubled in the middle east in the year 2019 2019 it, it literally twice as many kids at the end of the year 
were fighting under arms as in the beginning of the year. And, and, and essentially, they don't have a lot of people to care. The UN has a special envoy for it, so God bless that person. But it is an issue. It is a serious issue. And it's not just, I mean, altruistically, you just shouldn't. I mean, if adults want to start wars, they should freaking fight them. It shouldn't be, you know, take a kid from some impoverished country, give him an AK, and then send him to fight your war in another country, which happens. We should not, we should not give anybody a pass. We should not waive the, the laws that we've passed in our country that, that demand us hold people accountable. We should hold them accountable, whether they're ally or enemy, um, because it's, it is the worst of society that allows its kids to fight its wars. And these young people, kids, are going to grow up to be terrorists, right? So it's not all altruistic. We should not want that to happen. Right now in Syria, there's, uh, for example, uh, El Hall camp, 70,000 people, mostly women and children, who know only one ideology, ISIS. So the Cubs of the Caliphate is uh, a group that they started to indoctrinate kids that really young and eventually be fighters. So if we don't step in the international community and educate them, and give them an alternate path, a vocational education, right? So not just don't believe in ISIS. Um, they won't have an alternative, and they will end up being the terrorism of tomorrow. So I think it's both the right thing to do as any human, but also the right thing to do for you and us and everybody in the West who doesn't want to have to fight terrorism forever. A lot of terrorism is caused by economic um, desperation, no opportunity. So I'll get off my soapbox there, but that is that is what um, Lobo Institute we advise the United Nations, ABC News, we're analysts, we do all this stuff. Uh, in child soldiering is an NGO. But there's it just so anybody knows if you contribute, nobody takes a salary from that. It has it has zero overhead other than like the accountant that tells us that we did everything right. Um, but it all goes it all goes out the door. It all goes to. Uh, NGOs that we know that we've that that most of them never come out of the bush, so they don't have a way to collect, uh, you know, donations because they're actually in the bush working to help these kids learn how to farm, learn how to raise livestock. It's not even like lofty goals. I mean, they're not teaching these kids how to code, right? So they're just giving them any kind of uh, occupation that they can do other than stay fighting. Um, so that is what, and then of course we really push, you know, political representatives, uh, international organizations like the UN to pass more stringent laws and to hold people accountable because everybody signs up to it. You don't want to be the country that says, oh yeah, I'm totally cool with kids fighting. You'll sign it. And then they don't, they don't, they still do it. So it's, it's one of those things. There's a lot to worry about in the world. So I know our issue isn't the only issue, but, um, there isn't a lot of people in that space that are, that are really focusing on it. Really personal to us. On that note, folks, please do check out Mixer Organization, Lobo Institute. I mean, this is such an important issue. Uh, I mean, terrorists aren't born terrorists, and you outlined that very well. I mean, there are so many different factors that go into this, and it's just a tragedy that so many young people are sort of like impelled or forced to sort of participate in this combat and just really, you know, facing a terrible physical emotional consequences of this stuff. So, uh, Mick, thank you for starting that project. Uh, it's the Lord's work. Uh, thank you for joining us here today on this podcast. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Great discussion. Let me know if you're ever in Montana.
That was our conversation with Mick Mulroy. Uh, really just a, a wonderful conversation. We touched a lot of different areas, uh, kind of you know, walked around the world, uh, but really focused on the Middle East. And, and at least to me, Andre, the biggest takeaway was the implication for U.S. operations in the aftermath of the U.S. withdrawal. Uh, Mick pointed out that there are uh, two bases in particular uh, that we can conduct counterterrorism operations in the region, that being uh, bases in Qatar and bases in Kuwait. Uh, but that's, uh, as Mick mentioned, far away, right? And so now that we don't have uh, active uh, operations in Afghanistan, operating in the region is incredibly difficult now because it's not like the Central Asian com- countries are interested in, in hosting U.S. troops, certainly Russia, um, even though the, the United States, the Biden administration did reach out to Russia to ask uh, if U.S. troops could operate uh, in and around Russia. That, as Mick said, is a, a really quite a terrible idea because that allows them to have access, uh, easier access to certain secrets such as our capabilities, both air uh, and land, and in some cases, sea power. Um, and so there, there's certainly that aspect of it. And also, really, he, he kind of delves into the Taliban taking control and what that does to Afghanistan, right? Uh, you know, Mick, but while serving in the U.S. Armed Forces, in the Marines, and in the CIA, had experiences um, related to Afghanistan. He didn't, of course, tell us that he was involved directly. But of course, you know, by just serving in the post-9-11 era, uh, it really is inevitable for anyone in that type of position. And so uh, really just quite a, a terrible uh, implication. And we also talked about uh, this recent reporting, uh, which was quite devastating, that U.S. Uh, agents, U.S. assets are being either killed or turned or gone missing abroad. And there are the, you know, the typical countries or typical adversaries who are likely behind this. And so he, that, that him, him talking about uh, really just, you know, while human is always going to be important, um, it, it, there are certain times in which the U.S. needs to kind of look at how it conducts operations. But I, I really, at the end of the day, Andre, and Mick made this very clear, that we're not moving away from human intelligence. Uh, it really underpins intelligence gathering even today. Yeah, absolutely. And when you're looking at this concept of over the horizon, it's still sort of a fuzzy uh, sort of concept, right? I mean, I mean, we alluded to this in the interview. Mick talked about it. You would really be launching perhaps strikes, if such strikes were required from hundreds of miles away. Uh, We don't really have any bases in any of the countries really bordering Afghanistan. We can't use Pakistan and so on. So Kuwait and Qatar, and that's a long ways away, right? So it's going to be profoundly more challenging to sort of engage uh, in a potential conflict in Afghanistan in the future, if such a conflict were to emerge. Yeah, without a doubt. And uh, I, I do want to just focus everyone's attention to Mick's current work at the Lobo Institute. Uh, the actual institute does a lot of advising and consulting with uh, governments and um, other you know, think tanks and stuff related to international affairs. Um, but again, the end-child soldiering aspect of it really is important. So I really do um, recommend you all check out uh, this uh, nonprofit. It really is a great cause, and they have some interesting content coming out uh, in the near future related to it. And so you can learn more about that. We'll have it linked in the episode description. Um, but we'll, we'll leave it there. Uh, really just a, a wonderful episode with Mick. Andre, anything else? Uh, Not too much. We have an exciting episode on Monday. I'll reveal that once we actually record the interview, but it's a very good episode, very interesting. Uh, And stay tuned for What in the World. All right. Thank you for listening and make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. 
follow us on social media and we'll see you next time.